Welcome to 100 PM, the show where we interview 100 active product managers from startup to enterprise and everything in between, all from one great city every season. If you're joining us for the first time, be sure to visit our website, 100productmanagers.com. That's the number 100, productmanagers.com. It's the web's fastest growing resource for product management topics. We've got tons of great articles about business, technology, and design, fabulous contributors, and the official must-read, listen-to, follow list, as recommended by our incredible guests, week over week. It's season one. We're here in Los Angeles. I'm your host, Susanna Bate, resident instructor at General Assembly and founder of The Development Factory. Welcome, and thanks for listening. Welcome back to 100 p.m. I hope you all had an amazing holiday season. I cannot think of a better guest to help us kick off the new year than Mr. Jason Marisman, co-founder and VP of product at growthhackers.com. If you're not familiar with Growth Hackers, they are the premier community for conversations on customer acquisition and growth experiments based out of Orange County, California. If the term growth hacking is new to you, don't worry. Jason is here to tell us all about what it is, how it works, and how you can become the product manager of growth at your organization. Let's meet Jason. I'm so excited to be here and I have a zillion questions for you. I'm going to try and temper my excitement and go a little methodically through it, if that's all right. Sounds good. Let's talk first and foremost about your background in technology. Can you give us just a flyover of your long career here, maybe over the past decade, some some key experiences you can share with us? Sure, I'm happy to. So uh, I actually started, I guess you could say, my real career at a company called Silicon Graphics. Um, probably younger folks, that'll be a new name for them, uh, but at the time, Silicon Graphics was really one of the uh, big companies in the Valley doing the most innovative things. They did 3D graphic workstations. It was a Unix-based company, so anyone who got hired had to be technical, but what was interesting was I had never studied any coding or computer science, but I remember buying a book called uh, Learn to Publish to the Web in Seven Days by, I think, Laura LeMay. Right. At the time, it was a special order book from Barnes & Nobles because they didn't have any books on how to do web publishing. Is this pre-Amazon, by the way? Not uh, to date probably here. about so 97, so maybe about the year that Amazon would have been coming out or wow. thereabouts. They could have really helped you out. Yeah, right. They could have. But in this case, um, yeah, it would have been pre-Amazon, and I special ordered the book. and. Uh, just basically a year or two later, I found that I was building some websites. I was doing HTML, a little bit of coding on the back to do things like somebody could submit a form and then it would grab the form information and send an email to somebody and you had to do a little bit of coding for that. And lo and behold, I ended up uh, having an opportunity to work at Silicon Graphics and it was because I had that technical background but thought as a creative person I studied liberal arts in college I think that's what they were really looking for because the internet was just starting to take shape at that point and I think that there was an opportunity to have uh, kind of these renaissance minded individuals who were non-developers non-engineers non-coders who could see the potential of this new medium called the internet and I think there was a 
an excitement about trying to find these people. So I ended up moving up to Silicon Valley. I was working, uh, living in San Francisco, working at Silicon Graphics in Mountain View. This was before the buses, so I got to do the commute. Um, coincidentally, the Google headquarters today is the old Silicon Graphics headquarters. And I was actually hired as a web producer. So that was actually my very first title. Uh, and I was producing an online e-zine for virtual reality developers. It was, uh, the language was called VRML. And essentially, we created an e-zine of content of what people were doing with this VRML technology that SGI was behind. And uh, we would have these developers coming, and they could read these articles, and we would have weekly features. We would do interviews. We would feature thought leaders, not all that different from kind of what we do on Growth Hackers today with growth people. And that was kind of where I started. After that, I ended up joining a company called Ask Jeeves. They were a search engine. I believe it's now ask.com. And it's R-I-P-S Jeeves, I remember. Yeah, exactly right. And uh, that was again up in the Bay Area. That was when I saw the title shift from producer to product manager. Uh, I was actually a international PM, started as a regular PM, became an international PM, and uh, was part of the team that set up Ask Jeeves in the UK, which turned out to be a really, really important property uh, for Ask Jeeves. You know, one of the things that comes up a lot is the the interchangeable use of the term project manager and product manager. And I'm curious, you know, you started out in a producer role, which is typically a project management type role. So when you say you came into product, was that somebody sort of said, oh, by the way, here's your new title, and then you had to figure out what it meant, or there was a conscious sort of move toward a product role that you understood what that was? So that's a really, really great question. Uh, I think it was probably the latter. Even though at the time, I don't know that there was many product management positions for internet. I think at that time, uh, there was probably product manager roles for like if you were a product manager of an Intel chip or something like that, there was very much this concept of you have a product, you're bringing it to market, you collaborate with developers on building that product, marketers to market that product. But at Ask Jeeves, it was an internet company, so it was a little bit amorphous. It was a product management role. I think that for me, um, I had seen a couple of product managers at Silicon Graphics, albeit some were internet, some were not. Uh, so I had an idea of what that meant. And I think that for me, the difference between, let's say, that producer slash project manager role versus the product manager role was the product manager had to have a little more vision as to what what is this product doing? What problem is it solving? How do you you know create a market in a demand for this product? You know what does success look like a year from now? Whereas I think that in a project management role, it's much more tactical than that. I think it's much more uh, how do you keep the project on schedule, on budget, uh, making sure that uh, you're going to launch on time and not run out of money. Now, I think with that being said. Any product manager, need, in my opinion, needs to have very strong project management skills. I do think the product management role, even though it's strategic, is also very detail-oriented. I, I also believe that product managers need to be held accountable for the products that they're bringing to market. So if you're going to be held accountable in, in a, with a responsibility like that, it's generally because uh, you're pretty good at keeping things moving and uh, you can you know, deliver results. In fact, it's one of the challenges, I think, about the role is this need sometimes to oscillate between being in a strategic mindset, being in that sort of visionary mode, as you describe, but then having to kind of be down in the trenches and be tactical in order to get to a launch or, you know, help out wherever there are gaps in the team. And sometimes 
we can get stuck a little bit in the tactical because it's comfortable to cross things off of a list, less comfortable to sort of dream and imagine and then steer. Yeah, I think that that's a really great point. And I call it telescoping. You know, that one of the things that I look for uh, when I'm hiring a product manager or working alongside product managers is the ability to telescope between different resolutions of detail. So are we in the resolution of detail where we're actually trying to build a product, build a feature, get it shipped? Or are we in the resolution of detail where we're really trying to paint a picture of, um, you know, what does this market look like? What is this problem that we're solving? You know, what is the competitive landscape that's out there? Um, you know, avoiding being myopic, you know, understanding that you think you do this today, but maybe we're actually doing something bigger. For example, you know, is Uber a, uh, on-demand taxi service or is it really an online dispatch service and it doesn't matter what they're dispatching that's the business they're in is creating software that can dispatch anything whether it's a taxi an ice cream truck or a private plane right I love that uh, I love that expression telescoping because I think it speaks I've asked many people on the show you know and I'll ask you later what they love about product management and a response we hear a lot is no two days are the same. And I think it, it relates to that. It's are we kind of zoomed in to, you know, 3000% uh, and just focusing on this thing as you describe, or are we sort of way out? So it actually just sort of, um, it ties that up nicely. Expect to see it somewhere in a quote later on. I'll be sure to give you credit though. <laughs> sure. Uh, okay, Ask Jeeves, then what happened? Yeah, so then after Ask Jeeves, I realized, uh, you know, I had kind of cut my teeth in big companies, which I'm very grateful for, especially because those companies were in Silicon Valley. I feel like I can truly and comfortably say that I learned from the best. I was always in rooms where everyone was smarter than me. And I think that that's something I still try to do. And I think everyone should try to join teams where you're not the smartest person on the team. You want to know that everyone is super, super smart and everyone has that self-realization that they're amongst incredible peers. Right. And having, you know, the internet was coming of age, right? So this was kind of around the year 2000. We had had the bubble burst, but after the bubble burst, I realized I didn't want to go back into working for big companies. I decided I really wanted to try something that was uh, more of a startup. So it was more of that idea of maybe going from zero to one, as opposed to previous roles where you're coming into a company where they already have a roadmap, they already have brand recognition, you may be scaling a product, or you're bringing a product to market where there's already a brand and distribution behind it, which is a different challenge, right? For sure. So in this case, I wanted to go the startup route. Uh, and I've been doing the startup route for many, many years now, um, albeit different levels of startup. So, you know, that could be seed level startup to series A funded startup to series B and beyond funded startup. Uh, when I joined uh, Sean Ellis uh, about four years ago, my co-founder Sean, I had actually started as an advisor uh, to a uh, Basically, he was working on something called Catch Free, and I'd started as an advisor, and I was actually in Europe at the time. I was working my way through some of the index ventures portfolio companies over there, bringing product leadership principles to Europe. It was something that was kind of new to them, and Sean said, look, if you ever find yourself back in California, it would be great to work together. So uh, I was ready to come back to California, moved back here, and about a week after I moved back here, we ended up buying what was Kiss Insights at the time from the Kiss Metrics team. Oh wow! And we rebranded Kiss Insights Qualaroo, and then uh, basically scaled Qualaroo by order of magnitude. Ended up increasing, uh, you know, the uh, annual revenue for that. And Qualaroo was just recently sold. 
Yes, so Quality was sold earlier this year. You get to put successful exit now next to your name. Right, like exactly right. Esquire. Yes, so uh, yeah, so we did we did sell Qualaroo. Uh, we even got you know our little placard that goes on your desk, which is something that happens when exits take place in Silicon Valley, which is kind of fun. And um, you know, Qualaroo. The idea behind Qualaroo was, you know, Sean is obviously one of the big thought leaders uh, behind growth marketing, uh, growth hacking. He coined the term growth hacking, and a big part of his process. Uh, but I would, you know, obviously say any process, but certainly Sean has done an amazing job of articulating the importance of it is uh, you have to listen to your customers, you have to listen to your users. And a big part of his process was surveying, right? He would like to run these surveys. And uh, he had a couple of surveys that he follows that if you find Sean's presentations online, he goes into detail about some of the questions that you can ask and some of the answers that you're looking for. But this idea of listen to your customers in their own words, allow them to articulate things like, you know, is this a must-have product? And if so, why or why not? How disappointed would you be if this product went away tomorrow? And then using those findings to be able to message and create demand for the product through the lens of the people who are most passionate about your product. And Qualaroo was a, or Kiss Insights, like I had mentioned, which is born out of Kiss Metrics, was really unique in the sense that it allowed marketers to run what I would call a micro survey, because we're talking one or two questions, mm -hmm. but at users who are on your website using your application, uh, I believe they now support mobile, so you could also do this through mobile apps. Right. Um, but most importantly, you don't know the identity of those users. So unlike a survey monkey survey where you're sending that, generally you're sending that survey via email, where you already have to have you know, a relationship with that user, whether they're just looking or whether they're a paying customer. If you don't have that email address, you can't really deliver the survey. Yeah. What was really great about Qualaroo was that you could get these insights from people at different points within the product. So it may be people who had not yet become customers versus people that just became customers versus people that are already habitual customers. And by targeting these microsurveys, you could start to get these really, really rich, actionable insights around those very distinct segments. It's funny that you bring that up. I just last night was teaching a class on metrics and, and talking about kind of pirate metrics in particular and this idea of if something is broken at a phase within the funnel, you know, all work stops and you've got to sort of get your archaeologist's brush and start digging around and looking for it. Sounds a little bit like what you're saying is that Qualaroo is the tool that could kind of help you find that problem. Exactly. In fact, I would say that uh, there's kind of the qualitative tool set and the quantitative tool set. So the quantitative tool set would tell you what's happening. So like you had said, the funnel is broken, right? You can see that through your quantitative analytics. You can start to see, you know, what does my funnel look like? Where are the leaks? Where are the leaks in my bucket? Where are the things that are clearly uh, broken from a just a pure quantitative point of view? And then the qualitative starts to shed light on the why it's happening. Right, so for example, um, let's say you have an e-commerce site. I think that one of the use cases that I always thought was really interesting for Qualaroo was uh, if you have a user who just converted for the first time, they just made their first purchase, mm -hmm. popping up a one question Qualaroo survey, what was the one thing that almost prevented you from purchasing today? Wow. Because oftentimes people might 
you know, when they're making that first purchase, there's a little bit of anxiety because they've never purchased from you before. Um, maybe they're not sure if the shipping's really free or if they're going to have a chance to review their order. Um, so by hearing from users' own voices of here's the one thing that almost made me not purchase, you can really start to get some ideas for things that you should be testing. And then, of course, you use your quantitative analytics after you've made some changes to see whether or not that made a difference. Right. Fascinating. I want to go back to something that you that you said earlier when you were talking about your history of in this journey, and that is how the product manager role changes depending on the, the type of organization that you're in. So, you know, you've worked in larger scale organizations, as you described, that are sort of a little bit more, well, they're, they're businesses that have been built. You know, there's proper departments that have been stood up, and so probably they're subject to some of that fragmentation or siloing effect that can happen. The roadmap has long been put in place by somebody who preceded you and or more senior to you versus that that startup piece, which is way more about tinkering and tinkering and tinkering until you find what works. So what can you tell us? Because I think we're fascinated with startup culture. That's like the sexy thing. It's less sexy to talk about just like safely steering a company through the maturity phase or the post product market fit era. What does product management look like in a more established company? Sure. So I think that before I even maybe talk into what could be some of the differences, which I think is maybe what you're asking, I'd like to start with what are the commonalities, right? What, what are the commonalities, of a pro, in my opinion, of a product manager, regardless of size of company or how mature the product is? Right. And I think that what is common is being obsessed with the customer. I think that you absolutely have to be obsessed with listening to your users, listening to your customers. Like for myself, I try to talk to a customer at least every day. Wow. Um, and I don't think that that should change, even if you're a part of a more mature product or a more mature team. Uh, granted, in larger companies, it may be a little harder to understand how to orchestrate that. You might have to work through other departments. But I think that the importance of keeping the pulse on how are the users getting value from the product that you've delivered? Uh, and you know, value could be different for, let's say, a consumer product versus a B2B product. But also, keeping your finger on the pulse of understanding what are the things that they love, what are the things that just they drive them crazy. A lot of times, they have ideas themselves of how the product can be better, and they love to talk about it. I think that a lot of people love the idea of talking to somebody who is in a position to make a change on the product, and they just want to say, you know, gosh, if you guys just had this one feature, you know, it would be really amazing. Now, that being said, product manager needs to have very good filters. You know, understand that you may be looking at a sample size of one. Right. Um, but you do start to see patterns after a while. Once you've talked to enough customers, you know, you're going to start to hear that the same things come up. And usually I find that they map to things that you as a PM have already been feeling yourself about the product. So it becomes really great validation that, you know, maybe it's time to figure out a way to get this on the roadmap or an MVP of it. As far as how things are different, uh, I think this starts to touch upon maybe some of the challenges of product management. I think as the organization gets bigger, uh, you have more opinions, right? So I think one of the nice things about being in a startup is that you have a very small number of opinions. Um, if you're in the product role, you have a lot of influence over the things that are happening. Certainly if you're a founder or a co-founder, you have even more influence. But then I think that as the organization scales, you're going to start to bring in a lot more smart people. And the thing about the product that's unique compared to, let's say, other roles in the business is 
oftentimes everybody's a user, certainly in a consumer product, right? right? I would have to imagine that everybody working at Facebook is a Facebook user. So in a sense, everybody is going to have pretty strong opinions about what they love and hate about the product. But it's the product management team themselves that are really in that position to define the roadmap, determine what are the things that are important. And it's a pretty big responsibility to be able to stand behind your own roadmap and being able to justify and rationalize. Um, now, the interesting thing about a startup is because you're doing a lot of experimentation, you're trying to get things right, even though it's a smaller team, you know, a lot of times you're going to have these ideas that are potentially disruptive because, you know, if you're not seeing much of a change through some of the incremental changes that you're making to the product, you may have to do something that's a little bit bolder. And it's important that those bold ideas get socialized, I think, for a couple reasons. One of them is you should sanity check, you know, the logic behind your idea. You know, can you rationalize this or is it really just coming from the gut? Um, and let somebody, if somebody's going to tell you you're crazy or that's a really bad idea, let that happen in private. <laughs> right? right. Now, right. second of all, um, assuming that there is something to that idea, then you're going to be able to feel a lot more comfortable not only talking about it in a group setting when you know that half or all the people at the table have already heard the, the, the seed of the idea in some form or another. But you're also going to have a more productive meeting because instead of being in sort of a sales mode, you can kind of jump right into, so, you know, we've already talked about this idea in one form or another and, you know, let's see if we can put our heads together as to what the MVP looks like to validate this or, or You're what. painting a picture of product management in these organizations a little bit like Survivor, where you're just sort of <laughs> going off and creating all of these micro alliances. And then and then when we come back together at the sort of the final vote of it, so we've all discussed this. And, uh, you know, and what's funny about it is that I do worry that I don't want it to sound political. Now, one of the reasons I was always attracted to startups is because, you know, they have a tendency to be less political environments than larger companies. Of course, it depends on the culture of the large company. But So I don't like to think of it as politics. I just think, like to think of it as just good principles of human interaction, you know, having the ability to... I think part of the creative process, certainly in collaborative creation, is there needs to be that socialization of ideas. I think otherwise it just be it's too easy to bruise people's egos or people feel scared to speak up because they don't want to disagree with somebody who is, you know, maybe of a you know, different title than themselves or, or whatnot. So, yeah, I, hopefully it doesn't sound po political because it's not meant to. It, for me, it's much more about that collaborative creative process. Well, and it is, I mean, all kidding aside, it's stakeholder management, right? right? The, the, the truth is, and we know this about product management, you're negotiating so many different types of thinkers and so many different types of personalities that when it comes to getting people to row together, there is a little bit of art in creating alignment, especially because a lot of the times you don't have the power, you just have the, the responsibility. That's a great point. And one of the things that uh, I learned very early on is that the product manager for me manages through influence. Right. Um, you know, so oftentimes it's a matrix type of role uh, where you may or may not have any direct reports. Uh, you're relying on other people to help you bring this product to market, but those people oftentimes don't report to you. Right? So for example, if you're working with a designer to bring a product to market, that designer might report to a head of design. If you're working with an engineering team to bring a product to market, they report to the head of engineering. So I do think that it's really, really important to exhibit, you know, what I, again, I think they're just good leadership skills. 
Uh, I think the product manager needs to be a leader. I believe it's the most entrepreneurial role in a company regardless of size. And oftentimes product management is a great path to CEO or founder because in a sense there's a general management skill set that needs to be there if you're going to be an effective product manager. I love that you brought up before just the, the reality of being users of products kind of inside. I mean, one of the things I say a lot to my students first class is you're already ready to think like a product manager because you're a user of products, which you've sort of echoed. And another thing that I say much later in, in the course is, you know, don't fall in love with your own solution, which just again speaks to the importance of kind of customer discovery, customer development ongoing using tools like Qualaroo. But this idea that if you happen to be a user of products and your product, that that's a double-edged sword because being internal, you're already predisposed to thinking you know what's right. That's why we do the customer check. It's like, am I thinking for myself or Get am out I of thinking the building. for them? Get out of the building, exactly. But there's an extra layer when, as you say, you're a Facebook user because you feel really connected to the customer experience. I mean, I'm not sure that it's a question. I was going to say, I hope it's not a question because I don't, <laughs> I don't have the answer. I think that, um, you know, like you said, product management is an art and a science. You know, I've mentioned the word renaissance, I think, earlier in our talk. Uh, it is kind of that renaissance role of, you know, you, you have to be enough of a scientist that, you know, you use instrumentation and analytics to understand what's happening. You're talking with engineers who are scientists by skill. Uh, but then there's an art form to it, and the art form is the ability to, you know, lead and manage through influence, the ability to empathize with users, but also do a good job of not being too biased. Right. So. Yeah, I think the, the reflection is just simply that just when you thought it was challenging, there's another layer of what makes it challenging. Right. All right. We are here at Growth Hackers, and it's not really a new venture, but I guess I want to say it's new because you're no longer with Qualaroo. You've sold that. For the benefit of our listeners, how do you define growth hacking? So growth hacking uh, for me is, it's really taking a objective-based approach to experiment-driven changes, if you will. So I think first and foremost, a product really needs to have product market fit and hopefully pretty strong distribution before you're really ready to start going into the growth phase. If you don't have product market fit, all you're doing is growing a leaky bucket. Right. Uh, so, you know, what does product market fit mean? That, that, that's, a, that's almost a separate podcast in itself. But I think that uh, there are a couple of indicators of when you may have product market fit. And, uh, you know, some folks will tell you, you'll know it when you see it or when you have it. I, I think really one of the big indicators is retention. You know, you're looking at retention cohorts for the people that come into your product, and if you have really strong retention cohorts and you find that you have this core group of users that not only never go away over time, but they continue to engage with the product over time, that's a good indicator. And if you've already started to sell your product, if you're finding that you're paying customer base is growing and you're retaining those paying customers, that's also a good indicator that uh, you know, you've reached some level of product market fit. Once you have that, now you're ready to do growth. So growth hacking for me is taking that product that already has fit, at least with a part of the market, and looking at all of the leverage points that you have within your funnel. Everything from how you're going to acquire new users to how you're going to activate new users, how you're going to monetize those users to get revenue, 
how are you going to retain those users, also how are you going to have those users act as a referral channel for you. And actually what I've just laid out is something that we're big believers in here at Growth Hackers, which is Dave McClure's uh, pirate metrics for startups. Right. Uh, he calls it that because it's R, like a pirate, right? <laughs> and it's the A-A-R-R-R, the Acquisition, Activation, Revenue, Retention, Referral. For me, growth hacking is creating that growth model to understand where your leverage points are, deciding which part of the funnel to focus on that's going to give you the most leverage. So. In another sense, kind of what you had mentioned, like where where is maybe a part of your funnel broken and maybe it makes sense to focus on that first. Right. Uh, the beautiful thing about the internet or any networked products is that you have very deep analytics so you can, you don't have to speculate where things are broken, you can actually start to see where things are broken. And then taking an objective-based approach to how you're gonna grow that through experiments. Right. So uh, an objective, is, uh, you know, you have OKRs, uh, which is, you know, out there. And I think that uh, we, we, we use the term objective here. Um, we use objective actually in the Growth Hackers uh, product. We have a part of our product allows you to manage this experimentation process. The attributes of an objective is what is it that you want to achieve, right? So what is your goal? What is the key result that you're going after, meaning like from a numeric point of view, you know, yeah. like if you're trying to move your conversion rate, let's use numbers, let's not just say I want to increase it. How does everybody know when we achieved the goal? Exactly, like right, say. how are we gonna know? And then what is the time frame? right? It's not ambiguous. So for example, we wanna double our conversion rate in our shopping cart funnel by the end of the quarter, okay. right? This would be an example of an objective. Once you have that objective, in my opinion, the entire team can rally around that objective. I think that it's actually something that's cross-functional. So I think you could actually say that growth hacking really happens across the company because sales can play a role in achieving that objective. Customer success can play a role in achieving that objective. And then certainly product can play a role because a lot of times in today's products, one of your best opportunities to influence user behavior is within the product itself. Right. So. You have this objective, you now start to have, let's say, some ideas around how you can achieve that objective, and then finally you need to prioritize those ideas. And you're going to prioritize those ideas based on having a hypothesis, what you expect the difference to be and why. If you're using your numbers correctly, you're going to have some ideas to why it should actually move the needle. And then finally, once you've designed that experiment, you're going to execute it, release it, monitor it, measure it, and then learn from it. And then the process starts again from the beginning based on what you've learned. And um, if things go well, you're going to find that you're growing. But it's really taking this very methodical approach, um, and it's really the scientific method. And then there's even elements of, uh, I think, product development and scrum in there. Uh, we actually use the term growth sprint. Our growth sprints are weekly. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, our goal is to release three experiments every week. All right. So, so I come back to that. Tell us what is growthhackers.com then, for, for those of us who don't know. Sure. So growthhackers.com, uh, there's a couple of parts to it. So uh, growthhackers.com is a place for anybody who's interested in growth marketing to come. And it could be everything from discovering um, some ideas around, let's say, different channels or reading case studies of how 
some of the larger companies have grown, um, being able to do AMAs with thought leaders, you know, who oftentimes are working for very fast hypergrowth companies, posting your own questions, which you can do by name or anonymously, connecting with other people of this community, if you will, this community of growth marketers. And then last year, we uh, introduced uh, what we call Growth Hackers Projects. And this is our platform that allows teams to collaborate around that growth process that I just talked about. Okay. So it's essentially a software tool, not maybe unlike, you mentioned Scrum, not unlike a Pivotal Tracker or a Jira, but for the express purpose of bringing transparency and collaboration to the growth hacking initiative within an organization. Exactly right. And then I think that part of our vision then becomes, you know, how do we intersect that with the network and leverage the network, the network consisting of this community of people, um, you know, a place where ideas are exchanged, uh, people with different skill sets and backgrounds. I think that there's a lot that we can do with those two components. On this topic of growth, I want to tie it back to product management. And you know, so one of the things that we know about product management is that it can be challenging and exciting for the same reason, which is integrated knowledge requirement. I think you spoke about this earlier. Sort of, you need to know business. I put in parentheses. You need to understand design and usability. If, if you're in tech, you need to know how software gets built. And sometimes an organization seeking a product manager to hire may look for a PM who skews heavily toward one domain. So you see you know, technical product manager, you see marketing product manager. You have a talk that you give about an emerging type of product manager called the growth product manager. So I think everyone listening is going, oh, there's another type of product manager I have to learn to become. But tell us, what is that position? Why is it important? And how is it different from just plain old product manager? Sure. So for me, uh, the PM of growth is somebody who has the ability to create that growth model that we talked about, understanding where are the leverage points, what does the funnel look like at this point, helping the team define these growth objectives, and then working with the team to design these experiments. Now when I say working with the team, that's assuming that you are bigger. But remember, part of it is that this growth process really only kicks in after you have product market fit, right? So generally speaking, I would imagine a PM of growth is at a company that already has some traction, possibly even post-Series B if we're talking startups. And there's somebody who is, uh, rather than being focused on shipping product and shipping value, the PM of growth is focused on shipping growth and results, which is inherent in the fact that the value is already there. What they're doing is getting users to do more of something. So a lot of times that's going to be influencing user behavior through these experiments. And one of the reasons I advocate this separate role for PM of growth is because oftentimes the highest leverage points happen within the product. Therefore, I do believe that there's going to be engineers that are going to be needed to do these experiments. Uh, there's going to need to be analysts that are involved in doing these experiments. And you're going to need to have people that are, let's say, good at copywriting, good at design. There may be some other resources that need to be pulled in depending on the nature of the experiment. But just as you would have a roadmap for a product management role where you're shipping value and extending the value proposition of the product, this PM of growth has this roadmap of growth experiments. And of course, that roadmap is changing as you learn and you discover. But what I found is that if you have the same product manager or the same product team trying to both deliver 
extend the value of the core product and grow the metrics of how users are already using the product, that, that's a lot to juggle. I think that it, it can be done, but I think that it can be more effectively done if there's that sense of ownership. Right. It, it's the way you're describing it, it's like a separation of concerns to say, look, we have something that is in market and is stable. We have to be delivering kind of day over day, week over week, the value that we've already transacted with our existing customers. And in the background, this is like going back to your sort of telescoping, telescoping? Yes. <laughs> My mind went to periscoping and I thought, no, we didn't plug periscope here. This, this telescoping idea of even though things are going well right now and there's a day-to-day -day requirement to support that, we need to be thinking about what's next, whether that's maximizing retention as you talked about, whether that's finding a way you know, to, to, to create some virality through referrals, et cetera, et cetera. So it's interesting that there's a separation, like the VP of, uh, or the product manager of growth is in their own sort of separate experimental wing of the building being like, don't worry about us, we're just going to be hacking stuff. It, exactly. I mean, very, very much so. It's that it, it, it is kind of that team that is uh, self-contained. Uh, self That's the word that I'm looking for. Um, you know, oftentimes I think the strongest growth teams will have that sort of product manager or business person who's, you know, again, leading the uh, vision process, helping design the experiments. Then you have the engineer who's able to build, you know, what's needed to run that experiment. You have a designer who can do any of the design requirement. And then that PM may function as their own analyst or depending on how complex the model is or how much data there is, you might even have an analyst on that team. So as an example, if you're trying to increase ridership for an app, I would envision that being a PM of growth because in this case, you're taking something that users already do today, meaning that the product already exists and fulfills a function and delivers value. Now you're trying to figure out how can you get them to do it more, right? Right. That's going to be a different set of experiments and designs at the product level than how do I make the product so that now you can get rides with different types of vehicles or with different types of drivers. I would consider that to be kind of more core product, if you will. Right. So yeah, I definitely see a distinction between those two and it becomes more and more distinct as the business grows. Well, and I think this integrated knowledge requirement is, it can definitely be something that's scary about staring down the barrel of, of coming into product management or being in it. But it can also be a really exciting invitation. You know, another thing that I talk a lot about with the guests is that every PM sort of has their unique blend of skill sets. And so if you love product and you love customers and you love the idea of creating value for people, but you're just like really, really obsessed with like, how can I break this thing wide open? And it sounds like growth could be the specific sort of path of product management that's for you. Yeah, I think that you're absolutely right. I think that people do have a tendency to gravitate towards certain types of product management. I mean, like you said, you know, there's senior product managers. I mean, like, for example, I could never be a product manager for, let's say, semiconductors because a product manager would have a very, very engineering heavy background. Right. You have these product managers of growth. For me, that would be somebody who is probably more akin to a marketing type role, somebody who may have been a marketer 20, 30 years ago, because a lot of times you're using the power of persuasion to you know, try to get the user to do something. And they could be persuaded through different calls to action. Uh, they could be persuaded through different language. Um, 
you know, things as subtle as share versus invite, you know, like very subtle languages. One of the people that uh, I'm a believer in, you know, is Dan O'Reilly and Predictably Irrational. I mean, you know, he's written an entire book and teaches entire courses about how to uh, influence users, you know, behavior and customer behavior and people behavior just by the way that you're presenting information and the words that you're choosing to use. Uh, Somebody who also... um, does something similar is Neer Eyal has his hook, his book Hooked and his Hooked model, which is how do you design, literally engineer a model where you're hooking users, you're effectively getting them to habitually use something. Yeah, I love that book. It, it does really read like a diabolical playbook. Yeah, it for, does. But then he speaks to use that with, with caution, manipulation right? <laughs> matrix at the end. But but you're reading it and you're going, is this allowed to be out on the shelves? Because and, and I think that these things are great because the reality is that. These are systems, these are processes, you know, these are things that are very deliberate. And there's an art to making it work, but that product manager of growth person, again, has probably a lot of elements from a marketing background because they really don't have to understand what's technically possible so much as they have to just understand how can I design some experiments to see if I can get users to behave in a different way. Right. Um, you know, versus, let's say, a core product manager that probably veers a little bit more towards the technical in an internet or app company because, um, you know, you're shipping products, you're making decisions around MVP, and you're making decisions around, um, you know, is there a, an easier way? And I think there's elements of that in this PM of growth role. Like, what is that minimum viable experiment, if you will, right? We don't want to overinvest in, you know, in building an experiment if we don't know it works yet. Um, but that more core product PM is is probably a little bit closer to the technology side of the spectrum. Uh, what I think they both have to have in common is very comfortable with analytics. Right. When, this is a loaded question, I, I realize, but when you're doing rapid experimentation, you, you shared with us that you do hear at Growth Hackers sort of three experiments per week. What is the right amount of time to look at the data before you're ready to make a pivot or or derive a clear insight from that? Because I think that's a question that comes up for a lot of people. Is it is it a day? Is it a week? Is it a month? Yep. And I, I think that the answer is it depends. Um, that's the official product it, management answer for everything. It, it is. It is. Um, I think that there's a couple things going on. So obviously, uh, the experimentation process is a data-driven process. It's the scientific method. You know, something that you'll read and hear a lot about as you look at A-B testing and multivariate testing is uh, the importance of reaching statistical significance of your test before you make a call. Uh, And I completely agree. As somebody who had the privilege of working for a company where we had enough traffic that we could truly run every experiment and then make a call within 24 hours as to whether or not we had statistically significant answer as to whether it worked or not, that was great. And if you have the traffic, that's how you should be making the call. But if you don't have that kind of traffic, then oftentimes you're going to be launching experiments and you're going to have to look at the user behavior and kind of look for directional data. Now, of course, the danger of directional data is because you didn't have a statistically significant sample, you may make a decision prematurely and then only find out later on that you made the wrong one. But uh, from my personal experience, um, oftentimes you can make some directional decision uh, if you're talking to your customers, you know, because you're a smaller set. Even you can even use some qualitative input from some of your most passionate users to start to understand, um, you know, is this an improvement or not? 
And then, of course, you can look at before and after. You know, what did life look like before we rolled out this change? What did life look like after this change? And even though that's not a strict A-B test, that's more of a time series test, I think that you can still get some directional data that, um, yeah, we're seeing that more people are converting or more people are getting through the onboarding flow or we can see that more people are inviting people or the quality of things they do in our product is higher with this flow than it was with the previous flow and be able to tell a story with examples. Yeah, and, and this kind of wavering between the importance, like the, the real importance and necessity of, of numbers and as you say, sort of, you know, quantitative analysis in this experimental method, which is so, so much the root, the core methodology, I think, of product management. And then, as you've said multiple times now, not abandoning qualitative entirely, right? Remembering that the numbers can tell you a lot, but I think just like we talked about earlier, the danger of becoming too tactical and not remembering to kind of bounce back into strategic, we can become so obsessed with the numbers that we forget to get out of the building, pick up the phone, call the customer, remember that there might be a completely different reason for why somebody behaves than what we can see through data. Totally agree. And uh, I love also that you come from a liberal arts background. I come from a liberal, liberal arts background as well. And it's just, I think it's so validating for people who might be listening in, who are thinking about coming into product to say that you don't have to be an engineer. You don't have to be uh, a marketer. It helps if you have those skills. Certainly some of those skills are going to um, be demanded of you within your role. But if you're creative and you think this stuff is cool, then like come and play with us. I totally agree. I think the one caveat I would say is looking back, I think that I wish I took math a little more seriously <laughs> than I did. Because one of the things that I've realized uh, as, as I've gone on my journey, uh, you know, as a product manager working in the internet, the internet produces huge amounts of data, right? That's one of the things that has made this into a new industry is that there's many more things you can do with that data. And the more comfortable you are with math, the more comfortable you are going to be with the data. And I just can't emphasize enough, and now I have my own daughter, that uh, as much as I want to foster the creative thinking, the out-of-the-box thinking, the creativity, the right brain, I'm also probably going to be pretty diligent about making sure that she gets comfortable with math. And when she forms an opinion about not liking math, it's because she understands it, but just doesn't like it as opposed to me. I don't think I liked it because I don't think I really understood it or how it could be applied. And it's only as I've gone through my journey that you know now I am very comfortable with math and very comfortable with the numbers, but uh, it took a few aha moments. And frankly, being surrounded by people in some of those earlier days in Silicon Valley, I think that one of the things that's very unique about Silicon Valley compared to let's say, you know now that I'm doing product down here, I've done product in Europe, is Silicon Valley has an amazing number of the brightest people in the world, right? If you think about it, you have Stanford up there, you have Berkeley up there, uh, and you know the top one percent of students in the entire world. We're not just talking the states. You know, these are the schools that they go to, and then what they do is they find themselves continuing to stay on in Silicon Valley if they want to work in tech. So uh, I think one of the things that's amazing about the culture is that there's really a culture of uh, everyone's an overachiever, everyone is uh, pretty extraordinarily logical. And um, I think that that's one of the differences that I've seen um, you know, between Silicon Valley and here is that um, it, it's, it, it really is very, very unique culture when you take 
uh, so many people that came from uh, such extraordinary backgrounds and put them together. Uh, whereas, but one of the things that I love about being outside of Silicon Valley is you're outside of the echo chamber. I think one of my biggest criticisms of Silicon Valley is uh, it's very easy in Silicon Valley to believe that the whole world or the whole nation or your whole user base looks like all the people that you interact with day to day. That's just not the case, right? right. I mean, you know, I remember, you know, in 1998, you know, everyone was ordering on Amazon and everyone was getting the books delivered to their office, but I'm pretty sure that that wasn't happening all across the Midwest at that scale. But it was so easy to believe, like, oh, every this is how everyone does it. Right. And uh, Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But, you know, again, the crystal ball element of that is maybe what they meant to say was this is how everyone will be doing it. Because I do think that, you know, Silicon Valley does happen to be a, you know, an early adopter uh, market because everyone is, is kind of savvy and works in the industry. But it, it can be uh, easy, easy to get sort of trapped in the box. Uh, and one of the things that um, I really love about working outside of Silicon Valley is um, I feel like I have a bit more perspective on what's really happening in the market at large. It's, it's like you took the words out of my mouth because I was going to ask, you know, when, having spent so much time up in the valley, you know, why LA and, and, and what's different? Is there anything you've noticed in, in being down here about kind of the tech landscape? Because we have our own sort of, as, as you know, this blossoming tech community, Silicon Beach, as some people like to describe. Is there a characteristic to the LA tech market that you've kind of perceived? Yeah, so, so far, I mean, so first uh, disclosure, I've, I've been, well, I was born and raised in L.A., Okay. spent all of my time either in Silicon Valley or Europe, and then came back to Southern California about 18 months ago. So it's really only in the last 18 months since I've been here that I'm starting to get out into the L.A. community. Um, you know, I've spoken with PM L.A., I think it is, and been to a couple of other events. I think that there's some great stuff happening down in L.A., uh, you know, I think that one of the things that I've noticed is it seems to be a little bit more skewed towards media, which completely makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you happen to be selling something or doing something that involves, let's say, movie studios or uh, entertainment brands, um, certainly I think that LA is uh, much better positioned than probably any other market. And I, you know, come on, let's face it, technology is, you know, software is eating the world. So it makes sense that the software that's... Uh, Eating LA is going to be much more entertainment bent, uh, but you know there's also some other interesting uh, companies that are emerging down here. I think some of the companies that come to mind is Loot Crate. Uh, they're based, uh, yeah. I think, in downtown LA. They're actually one of our customers for uh, Growth Hackers projects. They're doing some really, really good stuff. Uh, Black Tux is in Santa Monica. I think they're doing online tuxedo rental and. I believe they're doing pretty good. Uh, here in Orange County, we have a company called Acorns, which is like a, a personal financial management app for your phone. And then, of course, there's the Snapchats, and there's the billion-dollar, uh, sorry, the the, the one-dollar one shave club, yeah, I guess, yeah, yeah. With the, but now it's the billion-dollar shave club, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. So Unilever's I, I, new baby. Yeah, so I think that there's a lot of really uh, great stuff happening down here to the point where one of the things we do at Growth Hackers is we have a growth hacking conference every year. A couple of years ago, we did it in London. That was our first, and it was a huge success. So we did it again earlier this year in February. We did that up in Silicon Valley. So is it coming up again? So we just announced this week that we're going to be doing our third Growth, Hacking, uh, Growth Hackers Conference, and that's going to be here in downtown L.A. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, and that's going to be, I want to say, May 24th. Put it on um, so, your calendars, yeah, people. So put That's it on exciting. Your calendar. And uh, we were very deliberate about choosing Los Angeles. You know, we, we chose LA because Sean and I feel that uh, we're really starting to see an ecosystem of, of ideas, talent, 
and really potentially big, big businesses that are starting to be born here. So we wanted to bring that, you know, kind of growth marketing message to the Los Angeles area. And uh, I'm wholeheartedly expecting that uh, we'll have a lot of people that are going to be coming from the Valley down to Los Angeles to attend that event. Generally, it's not hard to convince people to come down to L.A. for a weekend. I think L.A. is a great destination. (laughs) Uh, Okay, we do a segment here on the show, Jason, called Get the Job, Learn the Job, Love the Job. So I'm going to throw these questions out at you because you've got tremendous amount of experience. We're all going to be wiser for having heard you today. What advice can you offer somebody who is looking to get into product management, either from a a related domain or just from a completely different space altogether? How to get into it? What can they do to get the job? I think number one, there's that prerequisite of having that entrepreneurial mindset even if you don't want to start your own business, you need to have the type of personality where you want to kind of start something from nothing. Even if you're going into a more mature role where you know the roadmap may have already been defined, I really do believe that a lot of what product managers need to be able to do is have an idea of where they want to go and or where they want the product to go, where the product is today, and then plotting the roadmap to getting there. So I, I would say one thing that you can do is try to find a mentor so if you know somebody who's already a product manager and they love what they do and you know they're working for a company and hopefully they're good at what they do, have them be a mentor. Try to meet them for coffee once a quarter and just have them talk to you about things that uh, you could be doing or uh, you know, if you want to get into product management. Uh, I think that another thing that you need to do is uh, not be afraid of of building things. I think that one of the best things that somebody who wants to get into product manager could do is give themselves a challenge of trying to build something from nothing. Yeah, and and talk about um, a great way to build on that that necessary skill of being able to talk the language of your peers, right? You know, it's it's not a secret in internet product management that working with developers can be challenging. Try working with developers when you have zero understanding of what it actually takes to build a product through code. You know. Yeah, exactly. I think that you need to have that understanding. And remember, product managers are good influencers. And part of being a good influencer is um, having the empathy with whoever you're talking to. And part of that empathy is understanding what they go through. Uh, anyone who ever used to build a web page in, in the old days knows that when something's not happening right, you could spend hours trying to figure out what went wrong only to realize that you were missing one closing carrot and that was what spent you know you spent the last three hours trying to figure out why your web page wasn't loading and I think that that's the type of thing that allows you to have that empathetic conversation with your developers because you know part of I think what people who don't really understand what the developers have to go through is they just expect oh here's what we need to do and they can't understand why it's being delayed or they can't understand why it's so hard because it sounded like it was really easy and I think part of it is that they're just underestimating the complexities of building something from nothing. What about hard lessons learned on the job, either your own hard lessons or just things that you've seen in your career where product managers often stumble because it's great to talk about it conceptually and then you're in it and there's pressure. Where do people uh, sometimes struggle? Sure. So I think that there's probably uh, three, three areas where 
uh, I feel like I've had some lessons learned over the years. So I think one of them I've spoken to a little bit is the importance of math and comf being comfortable with data. I think another lesson I learned was about that influence story, uh, realizing that people usually don't like to hear big ideas for the first time in a meeting, unless it's a brainstorming meeting, but if it was a meeting with an agenda, you probably want to socialize some of those things before you go in. Um, and then I'd say that uh, probably the third thing relates to that telescoping that we were talking about, is knowing which resolution to be operating in depending on what the objective is and who the audience is. I just love that term, it's so good. What's your favorite thing about product management? I mean, you are addicted to this role, so. I'd say that there's a couple elements to it. I think one of them is that idea of going to something from nothing, which is probably a little bit more unique to a startup than maybe a larger company. But I love this idea that, uh, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, but going from cocktail napkin to product that's used by hundreds or thousands or millions of people. Yeah. For me, there's just something about that. What I didn't expect to discover was how rewarding the rigidity of scientific method can actually be. Yes. You know, as somebody who's used to sort of free range thinking, there is something tremendously comforting about the practicality of if the results are telling you this, that's what the results are telling you, make a correction. And that you can quite, you know, you use the term uh, something from nothing, that you can quite truly experiment your way from idea over a beer to multi-million, multi-billion dollar company just by being methodical. Yeah, I think so. And you know, it's funny, as you were talking, I realized there's probably, I don't know, uh, I don't know if I'd categorize it as a lesson, but I'd categorize it as an attribute that I think is very important for product managers, which you touched upon, which is you, you had mentioned, you know, might be good at writing or very comfortable writing, not as comfortable in math. I think that product managers need to be great communicators. Uh, like we said, product managers are influencers. Um, they're selling people on the vision, they're leaders. And you have to be able to have the narrative. You have to be able to have the story and you have to be able to communicate that story. And again, it depends on the audience. You know, if it's a group of investors or if it's a, you know, if it's your board or if it's the rest of the executive team, that's one resolution. But if it's the requirements so that a team of 25 developers knows what they're gonna be building in the next three weeks, that's a different resolution, but what they're all going to have in common is that very that, that ability to tell a story in the right level of detail. Right. Thank you. Yeah. You you had brought up earlier. You know, talked about uh, Dan O'Reilly. You talked about Nirayal. Are there any other recommended resources that you want to kind of throw out to our at 100productmanagers.com? We have a growing resource list blogs, podcasts, books, anything you think is worth checking out? Sure. So uh, at the risk of self-promotion, I think growthhackers.com is an incredible resource for anybody uh, who's trying to grow a metric anywhere in their business. I put it in every slide deck for all of the courses I, love I teach. So yeah. yeah. So, and I, I truly think it's there. I mean, this is not like, you don't have to be the PM of growth to be able to get value out of growthhackers.com. Sure. In my opinion, growthhackers.com has incredible content, incredible thought leaders, uh, we have a uh, top post email that gets sent out every Monday, um, and I think that it's a really, really great place to spend some time and and start to 
stimulate that creative thinking and that intellectual curiosity about how you can start to move the needle in some of the metrics um, based on your objectives. Great. Um, I would say that as far as books, you know, like you said, uh, Predictably Irrational by Dan O'Reilly, I think is a great one. Uh, four Steps to the Epiphany, we use the expression get out of the building. I believe that comes directly from Steve Blank in Four Steps to the Epiphany. Uh, it's a hard slog to get through, but it's, it's worth every page. Um, Hooked by Neary All, I think that idea of uh, you, can, you can engineer a habitual experience. I had the privilege of uh, interviewing uh, Nier for a roundtable at the Growth Hacking Conference earlier this year, and um, just a, a really great guy. Uh, Lean Analytics by Alistair Crawl. I think that Lean Analytics is also really, really good. It's understanding those KPIs that uh, map to like leverage points, right? Every type of business and every and depending on the stage of your business, we'll have a different set of KPIs that you need to care about. And it's very easy with the amount of data exhaust that the internet produces to be overwhelmed with too many numbers. And I think one of the nice things about Lean Analytics is it kind of talks about that need to really focus on the one metric that matters. Get to that point where you know you will know just from looking at this one metric how everything else is doing. Yeah, yeah. Referral is important, but not until you've solved acquisition. Right. Uh, and then there's also Sprint from Jake Knapp. Um, you know, that's just a, a, another good book about, uh, you know, breaking things into the smaller chunks and, you know, kind of echoing just a lot of the best practices that you find in Agile and Lean and just, you know, don't, don't engineer for the phantom problems and uh, try to keep things, you know, small and simple. This is, this is really great stuff. A nice, healthy reading list for everybody listening in who really wants to get uh, a good head start across a, a number of different areas of product management. So very diverse list. Last question for you, Jason. Is there a personal mantra or quote that you live by, either you know, in to guide your own kind of life or your professional life? What is it? What does it mean to you? So that's a big question. I would say that you got to love what you do doesn't matter if it's your work, doesn't matter if it's where you live, the people you surround yourself with. I think that uh, I can't emphasize the importance that it, you, know, you, you have to be excited about getting out of bed every day. I think as far as you know, on the professional side and you know, as a product manager, are there some core tenants that I live by? You know, in no particular order, I think taking risks is really important. Uh, I've, I think one of the reasons I really enjoy working for startups is it's risky business, but I also think that uh, going back to that idea of a creative position and having a background in the creative arts, really there's nothing riskier than creating something from nothing. You know, you're risking it, you know, people not liking it, people making fun of you. Uh, so I, I think you have to take those risks. That's how you get better. Uh, I think owning and committing, you have to own your product or you have to stand behind the idea that you have and you have to be prepared to commit to it. Uh, if people poke holes in it or somebody brings a better idea to the table, you have to have the humbleness to be able to acknowledge it's a better idea and commit to other people's ideas uh, sometimes. Um, being frugal and keeping it lean, I've seen a lot of waste in in the internet. <laughs> There's a lot of waste. There's some very fancy offices out there. I think fancy offices are great when you have a great solid business with solid metrics behind it. Uh, but even then, um, keep it frugal and keep it lean. Always be learning. You know, ne never stop learning. There's always people out there that can inspire you that know more than you. And I always try to teach myself new skills and, and be inspired by new people. 
That's amazing. Thank you so much. On behalf of the show, it's really been a pleasure to meet you and hear Thank from you. you, and we're so grateful. And I really enjoyed it. Thanks. You're listening to 100 PM, the official podcast for 100productmanagers.com. If you haven't been to our site, please check it out. We have so many great resources for anybody looking to learn more about product management or starting a technology business. I'm your host, Susanna Bate. Join me here. We've got a new conversation every Tuesday. We'll see you next time.